morning. This morning's scripture is from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, He, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We, we, we wins the argument. We wins the argument. You know, there was a study that was reported in a journal called Psychological Science and it discovered that the very best arguers are those who use the word we. Those that use the word we most during an argument usually offer the best solutions. These researchers discovered that spouses in an argument they find that those who use the word you tend to be more negative and, and have more negative interactions, whereas those who use the first plural, first plural, person plural, we tend to have more positive interactions and more positive outcomes. And the study concluded, this is what they said, we users may have a sense of a shared interest that sparks compromise and other ideas pleasing both partners. You-sayers, on the contrary, tend to criticize, disagree, justify, and otherwise team with negativity. We wins the argument. Or maybe it might be better said not that we wins the argument as much as we wins the other person. We wins the other person. As I read this study, I couldn't help but think about Jesus' words in Matthew 18. 
In Matthew 18, Jesus taught his disciples that if they felt a brother or sister in Christ had sinned against them. In verse 15, he says, go to them. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. In some other translations, it actually says you've won your brother. Not that you will have won the argument, but you will have won your brother. And that's far more important. Because when that happens, we have won. We wins not the argument, but it wins my brother. It wins my sister. We wins our unity. And church, we need to make a commitment. A commitment to maintain and to protect our unity. We need to make a commitment to we. A commitment not to win the argument, but to let the gospel win over us all. This is one of the commitments that we need to make as a church family. As many of you know, Sundays this fall, we're talking through some proposed changes and some clarifications that the elders are going to be bringing to our church covenant in for vote and consideration in the December business meeting. And our church covenant, those are promises. Those are commitments that we make one to another as we together pursue Jesus Christ. And one of the commitments that we need to make is a commitment to we. It's a commitment to uniting the church. And that's exactly what Paul is discussing in today's passage in Ephesians 4, which Karen read for us. Now, you know, some of Paul's letters, when he writes, they're very contextual. He's writing into a church that's experiencing some very specific issues that he needs to address. We find that in, say, Galatians or 2 Corinthians. But Ephesians is not that contextual. When we read Ephesians, it almost has this this cosmic, this universal quality to it. One commentator wrote about the letter to the Ephesians. He said, if you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, give me your very best thinking about the church. He would have offered you the book of Ephesians. And more than that, many commentators look and they say that there's no passage in the entire New Testament that's more descriptive of the church in action than what Karen just read for us today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. In the larger flow of this letter to the Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is arguing theologically that we are united in Christ. And starting right here in verse 4 to the end of the book, he's saying, well, practically, what does that look like? If we're united in Christ, then what does it practically look like for us to live united in Christ? And that's why Paul opens chapter 4 in verse 1 saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, listen, you've been called in Christ. So now walk worthy of that calling. And friends, remember, none of us was called because we walked worthy. We walk worthy because we've been called. Church, remember, grace always comes first. Grace always comes first. Paul's not saying walk in a way so that you can earn God's favor. He's saying because God has freely given you his favor, now walk in response to that. Our lives are not a cause for receiving God's grace. Our lives are a response to having received God's grace. And so Paul says, if you've been called, if you've received grace, now walk in response to that grace. And how does, how do we walk in response to that grace? What does that practically look like? Unity. Walk 
in unity. And friends, is there any more needed message for our world today? Unity? I mean, again, look, look at our world. Our default is not unity, is it? Our default is division. Our world is divided by sin and by fear and by suspicion and by unforgiveness. We're divided as a country by nationality, social class, religion, age, gender, and race. I mean, racial division has been thrust to the forefront of our, nas- our national discussion this last year. And movements such as Black Lives Matter and the critical race theory movement, they're, they're doing little to nothing to heal us, but only deepening our divides. Friends, division is humanity's default, and many of our human solutions only serve to divide us even more. However, Paul just spent three chapters to the Ephesians writing about how a divided humanity is reconciled, brought together in Jesus Christ. He says, Jew and Gentile both reconciled into Christ. Black and white, man and woman, young and old, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, mask wearer, mask objector. They can all be reconciled in Christ. You know, Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are united in Christ. And he says, if you are united, if I'm united in Christ and you're united in Christ, then we together are both united in Christ. We're united to one another because we're both united in Christ. So unity is not created by our efforts. It's It's a consequence of being united to Christ. And this is why Paul writes that this is the work of the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, it's the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. Now, interestingly, the the word that he uses here in Greek is the only place where this word is used, and it literally says, it's the oneness. Keep the oneness of the Spirit. Keep the oneness of the Spirit. And isn't that what we prayed together this morning in song? Make us one. Make us one undivided body. And friends, we prayed that because that's what Jesus prayed for us. That's what Jesus prayed for us. In John chapter 17, verse 23, He prayed for us and He said, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that You sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly one. And he said, more than that, your unity, your oneness with me and with one another is going to be the evidence to the world that you are mine. Jesus prayed for oneness, a unity that only the Spirit can create. But church, it is a unity that you and I are responsible for to protect. Only the Spirit can create it. But we are called to protect it. And so in verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, walk in a way that maintains that unity. He says, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Samuel, that should be there as far as one of the Scriptures. So that should be... I noticed that they're not coming up. Maybe they are and I'm not seeing them. All right. 
So friends, this was Jesus' prayer. This was Paul's command. And this was the consuming work of the early church. Friends, maintaining the unity church was a battle. It was not a battle against one another. It was a battle for one another. You see, they had to commit not to win the argument, but to win their brother, to win their sister, because we wins our unity. And so many of Paul's letters specifically addressed issues of division within the church. And he argued we need to do all that we can to protect the unity of the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul warned against those who would divide from one another as they were following different theological teachers or championing different pet doctrines. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling amongst you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And friends, don't we struggle with these same things today? You know, we divide over our favorite teachers or our pet doctrines. But was, is Christ divided? Was John Calvin crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Martin Luther? Can a premillennial eschatology save you? Can an amillennial eschatology condemn you? We divide over music and style, but was Christ divided? Were the hymn writers Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of contemporary worship musicians, Carrie Job or Chris Tomlin? You know, we divide over pandemic restrictions. Will masks and social distancing save you? Will a failure to wear a mask condemn you before God? We divide over politics. Was Christ divided? Was Donald Trump crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Joe Biden? Will your vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican Party condemn this country? But as we heard Paul write to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, by the name of Jesus Christ, agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now, he's not writing that they should agree on these issues. He's saying that they should agree to remain united despite their differences on these issues because these are secondary, non-essential issues. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about essential or primary doctrinal issues. We're not talking about things such as the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the literal bodily resurrection, salvation by faith of alone. Because errors like these do need to be confronted and corrected because they'll cause harm to us and to our relationship with Christ. We're talking about secondary, non-essential issues, an issue on which the Scripture doesn't take a direct, make a direct statement or take a clear position. Uh, script, uh, issues on which they don't directly alter the truth of the Gospel. And just again, as an aside, we're, we're not talking either about sin issues, because sin always needs to be confronted, confessed, and repented of. Because, friends, unconfessed, unrepented sin causes damage. It causes damage to our relationship with God our relationship with ourselves, our relationships in our marriages, our families, and our church community. So we're not talking about those issues. We're talking about issues of personality, issues of opinion, issues of pet peeves and preferences. We're talking about secondary issues. And Paul says when it comes to such secondary issues, fight not to win the argument. Fight to win your brother. 
your sister, our unity. Because we wins our unity. Now understand, it's not that these secondary issues are unimportant, but Paul's saying our unity is more important. Hear that again. Not that the secondary issues are unimportant. He's saying that our unity is more important. That our unity as a church is of primary importance. Because unity is a primary issue. So don't compromise a primary issue for the sake of a secondary issue. Unity is a primary issue. So don't compromise a primary issue for the sake of a secondary issue. Because our unity is a primary issue. So as we battle it out on the secondary issues, uh, on the opinions and on the policies and on the politics, we need to remember that we fight not so much to win the argument, although these arguments are important. We fight to win our brother, to win our sister, to win our unity. Because we wins our unity. I mean, some of you might remember that recently we were studying the letter to the Philippians together. And and Paul specifically addressed a conflict on some secondary issue. And that conflict was between two prominent women in the church. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, Paul writes, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, we're not exactly sure who these two women were or exactly what their conflict was over, but it had to have been a good one because Paul was 800 miles away from Philippi. He was in Rome in prison and he still heard about their conflict. That's a big conflict. Now, it seems likely that their conflict, whatever it was, was not over doctrine because we know Paul. Paul was not shy about addressing doctrinal issues. And it was likely not an issue of sin because Paul was also not shy about addressing sin issues. So this was probably not doctrinal, probably not sin. It was likely personal. Some kind of pet peeve or preference or opinion. And whatever their issue, Paul writes in verse 2, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Do you hear what he didn't say? He didn't say agree on the issue. He said, agree in the Lord. You're both in the Lord. And the reality is that you are both in Christ. And because you are both in Christ, the two of you are united not only to Him, but to one another. That's not some essential add-on. That is our unity. So protect that unity more than protecting your opinion. Agree in the Lord. You may not agree on the issues, but agree in the Lord. Win not the argument but win our unity. And friends, the majority of time when somebody chooses to leave a church, it is not over primary issues. In my tenure as a pastor, I can count on one hand the number of times that people have left this church because of a legitimate doctrinal disagreement on a primary issue. In my experience, when someone leaves the church, it is almost always over a secondary issue of preference, policy, or politics. But church, our unity in Christ is a primary issue issue. And we must do all that we can to protect it. In 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, Paul argues we must lay down not only our preferences, but our very rights for the sake of the unity of the body. Because our unity in Christ is worth sacrificing for. Church, Christ died for our unity. The gospel demands our unity. And Jesus taught that our unity 
declares to the world that we're His. And so if Christ laid down His life for our unity, then our unity is worth sacrificing our rights for, worth sacrificing our preferences for. Our unity is worth fighting for. I will fight for you. Not against you, but for you. Not to win the argument, but to win my brother, to win my sister, to win our unity, because we win our unity. And so it is in this Ephesians passage that we're looking at today. Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we should bear with one another in love. Now, the Greek would actually be better translated putting up with each other in love. Putting up with each other in love. And I love that because sometimes you just plain have to learn to put up with each other. You don't get to choose who's in the body of Christ, do you? God is reconciling to himself a diverse body from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every political persuasion, economic strata, and social group. A diverse people whose political candidate might disgust you, whose lifestyle might embarrass you, whose mask usage or lack thereof might frustrate you, whose sins, the ones with which they still struggle to overcome, might appall you. But in Christ, God's reconciling a diverse and a sinful people, all saved by grace and being transformed by his Holy Spirit. People like you... And like me, who step on toes, who disagree, who hurt one another, who embarrass one another, and who all stumble onward, growing towards grace. Friends, there are many black sheep in Jesus' flock. I'm one of them. And so are you. And we must learn to put up with each other in love. To protect our unity, we need to walk, as Paul describes it here, in humility, gentleness, patience, eager peacemaking. So who do you have trouble putting up with in love? Maybe there's a particular person, a personality type, a position, a political position, an ethnicity, a social group, someone who's hurt and embarrassed you or disagreed with you. How does the Holy Spirit need to work on your heart? that he might teach you how to walk in humility, worthy in ways that protect, protect our unity. You see, Paul gives us a theological basis for our unity with those seven one statements that we actually read at the beginning of our service. Verses four through six. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Many scholars believe this seven-point summary was some kind of an early creed or confession that was written by Paul or used in the churches. And the one at the beginning of every one of these statements emphasizes the uniqueness of our faith and the unity of the gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one. And if you're in it and I'm in it, then we're in it together. We're united. And Paul goes on further to emphasize not only theologically are united, we are united spiritually by the Spirit, by the gifts that He's given us. And he goes on to talk about ministry gifts given to the members of Christ's body. Because no one of us has all of the gifts necessary for the body to function the way it should. So, diverse ministry calls for diverse gifts. And verses 8 through 10 are, are an aside. Paul quotes here from the Old Testament to make the point that Jesus, who descended to earth, and ascended again into heaven when he ascended, gave spiritual gifts to all his people. And so it says in chapter 4, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us is inclusive. It means that the gifts that Paul is discussing here are gifts for all of us. Not just gifts for some elite few, but ministry gifts distributed amongst the whole body of Christ. 
chapter 4, verse 11, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And friends, what we have here is a picture. A picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ expressing itself now through the people of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent one. And Jesus was sent. He was sent by the Father to do His will. And then He sent the apostles, literally meaning sent ones, with the gospel to the new lands. And friends, the people of God, you and I, are still sent today. Jesus was a prophet. He was the greatest of prophets. The prophet whom Moses in Deuteronomy 18 had predicted would come. And the people today are still called to be truth-tellers, speaking God's Word into situations. Jesus was an evangelist. Euangelion is the Greek word for good news. Jesus came proclaiming the Euangelion, the good news, the gospel. And we today, His people, are called and gifted to speak that good news to others. Jesus was a shepherd. He called Himself the Good Shepherd. And He gathered for Himself a flock from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And friends, He's called us to shepherd that flock, to care for and to love one another. And Jesus was a teacher. He was one of the greatest of teachers. His teachings have changed cultures and the course of human history. And Jesus has now called His people to teach one another that we might rightly understand and obey His Word. These five areas represent five dimensions of Christ's ministry. Christ's ministry that now has been given to His body through His Spirit. Church, we are sent ones, truth-tellers, gospel preachers, caring shepherds, scriptural teachers. This passage is not saying that Jesus gave a small group of elite leaders unique gifts so they can equip the saints. This passage says Jesus gave all the saints these ministry gifts in varying degrees to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of Christ. We have been gifted differently, but every one of us has been gifted And only when we are all united with those diverse gifts, only when every one of us is doing his or her part, will the body of Christ be built up and grow to maturity. In verse 13, Paul says that his desire is that we grow and we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son and God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ until we attain unity. Unity and maturity. And never neglect those small words in these passages. Until we attain. Not until you attain. Until we attain. Because maturity, growing up in the fullness of Christ, requires our unity. It's a corporate event. Your maturity is a corporate event. It takes a village. Friends, this flies in the face of our fiercely individualistic society. It says, I can't just be concerned about myself, my growth, my maturity. I need to be concerned about us. Paul's emphasizing our unity. The body must be our focus. It's maturity, my concern, your concern, our concern. Because only together, church, only together are we going to grow to maturity into the fullness of Christ. And Paul warns in verse 14 that until we've matured, we are going to be tossed to and fro by every new wave of teaching. But instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head. In in Greek, there's actually no verb in this sentence. Paul literally says, truthing in love. You'll grow into maturity as you're truthing in love. 
I like that. Truth and love. Because you see, maturity, church, we need both truth and we need love. We need people who love us enough to tell us the truth. And we need people who speak the truth lovingly in a way that we can hear it that encourages our growth without destroying unity. Because love without truth doesn't facilitate maturity and truth without love does not facilitate unity. Love without truth does not facilitate maturity. But truth without love does not nurture our unity. Truthing in love allows both unity and maturity. Because we're seeking not to win an argument, but to win our brother, to win our sister, to win our unity. And Paul says the end result in verse 16 is that from Christ the whole body joined, held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. This final verse brings us back to where he started. The first verse was that we should bear with each other in love. The very final verse, so that we build ourselves up in love. Love protects our unity. Love causes us to grow because love is about we. We, our unity, is worth fighting for. Friends, our unity is a primary issue and we, our unity, is worth fighting for. And friends, I recently witnessed the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to unite those who differ. You know, I... There was a brother of Christ and I who'd been in a disagreement over some secondary non-essential issues. Again, not essential primary issues and certainly not sin issues. I'm talking about secondary issues. And I went to talk to my brother because we seemed to be at an impasse. And as I drove over to his house to talk to him one afternoon, I was praying Jesus' words from Matthew 18. And I was praying, Lord, help me not to go to win an argument. Help me go to win my brother. And as I drove over my brother's house, I was praying that over and over again. Because I needed the Lord to work on my heart so that I wouldn't go over there to be proven right. But rather be made right with my brother. I need to pray the Lord would help me not so much to win the point as to win my brother. Because friends, it's we that wins our unity. And I can tell you it was a great conversation. It didn't magically work everything out. I didn't change his mind. He didn't change my mind. But to this day, we agree we have much more that we need to talk about. And we're going to continue to wrestle. And by God's grace, we're going to continue wrestling together. And I went away from that conversation, church. I gained my brother. I didn't win. He didn't win. But we won. The gospel won. And we stand united in our continued uncertainty and disagreement over this particular issue. Because protecting our unity in the gospel was more important than being proven right. Winning my brother and protecting our unity was more important than winning any argument. And church, that is the message of the gospel. The gospel wins. Not I win. The gospel wins. And this is how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. When we stop trying to win arguments and start trying to win our brothers and our sisters, when we allow the Spirit to humble us to say, you're more important than any secondary theological issue, any political position, any personal preference or comfort, I want to win you. Not win the argument. Because we, we win our unity church. 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can we and will we commit to Christ and to one another that it might be so? Let's pray together. Father, you've heard our prayer already. Make us one. Make us one undivided body for the sake of your name and your church and your glory and our unity in you. Christ, make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.